A History of the Beanbag and Other Stories by Susan Medalia. With photographic precision, author Susan Medalia captures the fleeting beauty, light and darkness to be found in the ephemera of everyday life, from the silences between people and the ordinariness of places, objects and events, she conjures narrative jewels of intelligence and grace. A History of the Beanbag is a short story collection with a difference, a scenic tour of the surprises, secrets and fears beneath the cracked veneer of domesticity and suburban complacency. Like the beanbag of the title, the stories are an invitation to settle yourself in for a reading experience by turns vivid, haunting, bizarre and strangely comforting. These are stories distinguished by their profound sensitivity to the unexpressed dimensions of ordinary people. They are works of rare lucidity, integrity and sureness of style, a beautiful and wholly accomplished collection. Gail Jones Susan Medalia grew up in the Western Australian Wheat Belt. She has taught for many years at tertiary and secondary levels and currently works as a freelance editor. Susan has published articles on contemporary Australian women's fiction in Australian and international literary journals. She was awarded the Todd Hunter Literary Award in 2006 and her short fiction has been published in publications such as Salt and Wet Ink. She is married and has two adult sons. To Dan, Jack and Harry. Contents. A History of the Beanbag, page 1. Freeze Frame, page 15. Legless, page 22. It's Only Words, page 31. A Voice in the Dark, page 44. Somewhere Else, page 54. Fitting In, page 67. Halfway Through the Nightmare, page 76. Meteor Man, page 87. Looking Out to Sea, page 100. All the Girls Are Doing It, page 107. Cobbler Cobbler, page 120 A Comedy of Manners page 130 Such a Shame page 146 The Monstrous Ark page 153 Put on Your Dancing Shoes page 163 Acknowledgements page 175 Page 1 a History of the Beanbag In the history of more recent fads and fashions, the newest, the latest, the hip and the funky, the ephemera of the pop phenomenal, one could single out any number of ludicrous, shriek-worthy, what-were-we-thinking objects or items of apparel. Women's clothing, for example, hot pants, the poncho, witches' breeches and platform shoes. For men, body shirts, safari suits, Winkle pickers, velvet flares. The sartorially improbable and preposterous. So much lust and longing on display. The transience of objects. The lava lamp with its sleepy, gloopy gobules. Hula hoops and yo-yos. Coloured canisters in diminishing sizes marked F for flour, S for sugar, R for rice, C for coffee. Ashtrays shaped like whales, with a hole in the top for the smoke to drift through in grey, lazy swirls. 
Let us take one particular item from a random sample of the cool and the kitsch and see where it might lead us. The beanbag, for instance. What histories, both micro and macrocosmic, might lie within this loose, baggy monster, this faux bohemian formlessness in denim, velvet, corduroy or fur? What stories might be summoned? What stories evoked? Origins The first beanbag chair was created by the Italian designers Gatti, Paolini and Teodora, whose suavely cosmopolitan names must surely have imparted a glamorous patina to their product. These gentlemen were employed by the Zanotta Company in 1969 when they invented, if that's the right word, the item in question. Think of this, a moment of inspiration, all three at once, followed by the unstinting application of technological know-how, months of designerly false starts, delays and frustrations, Hours and hours of machinists filling, stitching and zipping, factory bosses musing, muttering and scratching their heads, wondering whether this would ever see the light of day. In the end, it was a triumph of ideas, capital and manual labour, working harmoniously together for the benefit of all. But the origins of the beanbag may have been altogether different. Popular mythology has it that the beanbag came into being as a result of an accident in which workers in a styrofoam factory put all the leftover pieces from the production line into a bag and, hey presto, found that they had made a chair which, for the first time, would move with the person sitting in it, would mould itself obligingly to the shifting contours, moods and desires of the human body. This seems a much more appealing version, more magically serendipitous, more worthily proletarian, No doubt someone has recorded somewhere a further and detailed history of manufacture, marketing and distribution of the beanbag, but no one seems to know if those putative workers ever profited from their discovery. Purchase. It is 1974. The place is near a university, more specifically a share house on a broad leafy street. Picture a young student named Robin, about 19 or 20, fairly nondescript in appearance, Average height and weight, shoulder-length brown hair and mandatory T-shirt and jeans. Middle class, comfortable. She's an earnest young woman aiming to be a social worker, currently studying psychology, maths, for the statistics, and archaeology, for the intellectual pleasure. It doesn't cost much for her to live. The government has just abolished university fees, she rides a bike, and her parents help her out from time to time. It's not altogether surprising, then, that on a Wednesday morning at ten o'clock, she wakes up, looks out at the sunny sky, and, stretching her arms, says sleepily to herself, "'Today I'm going to buy a beanbag.' Robin has never sat in a beanbag, and has only seen them through shop windows. Nor does she have a specific need for one. There are seven chairs in her share house, plus one rather ugly but entirely serviceable sofa. But because the day is ahead of her, because her body would like to be enveloped and simply because she can, she decides to buy a beanbag. She has, in fact, seen two of them. One, a purple velvet, the other, a coarse cotton weave in pink, spreading nonchalantly on the floor of the local op shop. Already out of fashion and discarded, but invitingly floppy and flippant. Robin likes the idea of what she imagines will be something soft and yielding, which will move with her body, something comforting. She briefly considers asking Cathy to go with her, but assumes she's still asleep and probably not alone. Cathy moved in a month ago from the country and is training to be a teacher. 
She's also gorgeous, and with what are coyly and predictably called bedroom eyes, although she seems surprisingly unaware of her attractiveness to men. With her flawless complexion and unfashionable curves, she's a free advertisement for the benefits of fresh country air and full cream milk. Glenn and Barry certainly noticed the curves when Cathy turned up to answer the ad for a place in the share house. They couldn't take their eyes off her as they fussed about getting her a chair, offering her a coffee. And when she spoke in her shy, quiet voice, they moved in close, not to listen to what she said, but to feel the brush of her arm or even the curve of her breast. Robin was amused by the spectacle of these two confident males with their private school, born-to-rule swagger, now reduced to puppies, tail-waggingly eager to please. She isn't sure now which one is sleeping with country Cathy, as she's taken to calling her in her head. She doesn't mean to be unkind, and in fact she quite likes Cathy, who is unassuming and sweet in a rural kind of way, and who, unlike the boys, does her fair share of work around the house. Robin doesn't talk much to her, but she remembers coming home one night to what she thought was an empty house and hearing Cathy singing in her room. To Robin's untrained ear, this country girl sounded beautiful, indeed exquisite. The notes were low and melancholy, quite unlike the timorous sweetness of her speaking voice. Robin was surprised at how well she sang, how haunting, she would have called it, her tone, and later told her so. Cathy blushed and was tongue-tied, but after some prompting, revealed that she was taking lessons in the blues. "'I know it should probably be country and western,' she smiled, self-mockingly, "'but I was really taken with Billy Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald from the time I was a little kid. "'I'd rather be a blues singer than a teacher any day, but what can you do?' She paused, her bedroom eyes looking suddenly apprehensive. "'Please don't tell anyone, especially Glenn. I don't want people thinking I'm big-headed.' After that, Cathy was happy to sing in the house, as long as the boys weren't around. Robin is clearly not the romantic heroine of this story. She's aware that men tend not to notice her, and if they do, it's usually merely to confide to her their romantic woes. They can spot her a mile away, smiling openly, a plain, well-meaning fountain of goodwill, quietly bubbling away in a corner. They assume she likes to go home at the end of the party, sober and alone, feeling good about her role as conciliator or consoler in some affair of the heart. It does, in fact, sometimes please Robin to know that she's been useful in this way, but she also finds such goodness has its limits. It often makes conversations with men drearily predictable. It confirms to her that she is regarded as a means to an end. So as she walks to the local op shop, Robin thinks that buying a beanbag will cheer her up, add some colour to her life. She regards it as a joyfully spontaneous, if rather self-indulgent act. In the op shop, Robin tries both the purple and the pink. The young guy in the store tells her there's an art to getting into a beanbag, and she follows his instructions, first taking it by the top and shaking it round, letting the beans drop more or less evenly to the bottom, then sinking herself in, moving around to adjust. She likes the feeling. It's just as she'd imagined, cosy and enclosing. She decides to buy the purple velvet because it's bigger, big enough for two. For just one moment, Robin wonders whether she should ask the guy to help her take it home, but he doesn't look up from the cash register as she waits for her change. So while it's a bit of a struggle to carry it by herself, it's worth it to see the bemused smiles of her housemates, now showered and dressed as she stuffs and pushes the unobliging beanbag through the doorway. 
Glenn immediately grabs Kathy by the arm and throws her into it, then jumps on top of her, tickling her furiously all over. It's clear to Robin that the beanbag is a hit. Over the next month, Glenn is assiduous in his wooing of Kathy. He wants to remove what he calls her rough edges by taking her to nightclubs and bars. I'll show you the hot spots, he grins at her, looking down at his crutch. Kathy misses the look and the joke, but nevertheless agrees to be taken in hand. She and Glenn spend more and more time out of the house, partying and drinking with his rugby mates. Glenn likes the way men look at his girlfriend and the way they call him a lucky dog. He's studying commerce and knows enough to know that the more men look at her, the more she's worth. When they stay in for the evening, they often sit together in the beanbag. Once, Robin thinks she sees them having sex in it, but she can't be sure, and in any case, she doesn't want to embarrass them, or herself. And she doesn't want to claim ownership of the beanbag. It's a share house, after all. Robin and Kathy hardly meet at all these days. Their paths rarely cross. Barry moves out. Robin suspects he's tired of watching Glenn slobbering all over Kathy, as he puts it, and they decide not to advertise for another tenant. Glenn says money's not an issue and generously offers to pay the difference in their rent. Most evenings now, Robin is alone and has her beanbag to herself. She's quite content to sit reading, watching TV or listening to the Billy Holiday record she bought for Kathy for her birthday. Clever Marketing It's 1983. The beanbag is making a comeback after several years in decline. Derided for its 1970s hippie associations, it's fast becoming a serviceable item for the more conservative couples. Clever marketing has changed its image from freewheeling, free love to something indispensable for the kiddies. Beanbags are comfy for the little ones to sit in while watching TV. They're portable. They can be kept in the rumpus room, away from the good furniture, and stored in a cupboard if required. They're cheap and ultimately disposable. Of course, there's the safety issue... The beans can fall out of a bag which hasn't been properly zipped, or older children can find ways to undo the bag when no one's looking. In fact, there's been talk of a fatality. A two-year-old is reported to have choked after ingesting a number of loose beans. While manufacturers and distributors denounce this unverified story, they nevertheless stress the importance of parental vigilance. Kathy, a much more likely romantic heroine, is in search of her first bean bag one that's suitable for the child she is carrying. Kathy has been married to Glenn for five years. She's never met anyone like him before. Such confidence, such self-belief. When she'd lost her virginity to him, it had meant a pledge of some kind. Glenn, however, was pleased because he was the first man to have her. He had had her cherry, as he told his mates one night at the pub. Kathy has never taken up teaching, although she did finish her degree. She was married shortly after graduating, and Glenn had said there was no need for her to work. Besides, they were both keen to start a family. His parents and sister liked her enormously. They thought she was a refreshing change from the rather rough trade Glenn had seemed to have latched onto when he first went to uni. Kathy was shy, of course, and a little overwhelmed by their house. She'd never been inside a place with a games room and three bathrooms, each one blinding white, and a separate dining room with upholstered jarra chairs. There wasn't a beanbag in sight. But the family made her feel at home, and she learned not to feel too silly when she wrapped herself up in one of their jumbo-sized towels or sat on the Chesterfield settee, carefully balancing a cup of tea on her lap. So it's with a light heart that Cathy walks, or rather sways, to the furniture store to buy a beanbag.
She and Glenn already have a house full of tapestried chairs, leather settees, and embroidered chaise longue. She'd never heard this word before until her mother-in-law took her shopping, but she likes the idea of something a little more informal, something for a child, even a little childish. Of course, Glenn is only too happy to indulge her whim. Kathy has seen beanbags in the windows of children's stores and has fallen in love with their sheer tininess, their endearing pear shape, their colourful patterns. This purchase, she knows, is an act of faith in the future, in the arrival of the healthy baby she and Glenn have longed for so much. She has had two miscarriages, distressing and difficult to forget, both at three months. But now she is nearly to term, and this baby is kicking, turning somersaults, full of life. Kathy wants her beanbag to be the most vibrant one in the store. She's happily talked into a rather expensive one, purple velvet with the faces of Bert and Ernie on it, and it's only later she recalls that it's exactly the same deep purple of the beanbag from her student days. She remembers that it belonged to one of the housemates, and how they'd all laughed when she'd struggled with it through the door. She hasn't seen Robin, that was her name, for many years now, not since her wedding, and has no idea what's become of her. Kathy recalls that the girl was kind to her when she moved into the share house. She showed her round the campus and sometimes talked with her. She remembers that Robin liked her singing, but that was a long time ago. A decline in standards. Three years have passed. It's 1986. Kathy and Glenn's daughter is also called Kathy at her father's insistence. He sees this as a testament to his beautiful wife, with whom he is still very much in love. His mates sometimes remind him of what a lucky dog he is. Despite her protestations, he has his way about the name. Glenn dotes on his daughter and likes to watch her belly flop into her purple bean bag. He laughs, but he's also careful, aware of the perilous pleasures this item affords. Kathy Junior is all the more precious because she was a long time in the making. She was no accident. It worries Glenn that lately his wife seems to be taking less interest in their daughter than she should. It was fine when Kathy Junior was a baby. Her mother adored her and would spend hours singing to her songs like "Incy Wincy Spider," and some odd, sad numbers that he didn't know. But now he notices Kathy is spending more on babysitters and going out more than she used to. She tells him she's meeting friends for lunch, and that Kathy Junior is too young to take to the expensive restaurants the girls seem to like. Glenn is entirely convinced. His wife's still a very good-looking woman. He sees the way men look at her, ogling her really, and now that she's a mother, he feels it isn't right. Nevertheless, he gives her the benefit of the doubt. He thinks that his wife doesn't smell like a woman who's having sex with another man. He reminds her that she's always promised they'd try for another baby. He's very keen to have a second, preferably a son. Things worsen during the year. Glenn sees that his wife is drinking more than her fair share of wine in the evenings, and he even suspects her of drinking during the day. Once or twice, he smells alcohol on her breath when he knows she hadn't planned to go out. She seems absent-minded, sort of dreamy. She's put on some weight. But he finds the extra curve sexy and is surprised at her blank face when he tells her so. One day he comes home from work to find her singing in the shower while their child is alone in the rumpus room, diving into the beanbag, her face smothered with laughter. Next, he discovers a pile of unpaid bills for, of all things, weekly singing lessons. Glenn is perturbed and puts a stop to it. It's not that he minds the money, not at all. 
It's the neglect of his child, the secrecy and the sheer pointlessness of it all. He tells his wife that another baby will fix whatever's wrong with her. What finally outrages him, it's the turning point in this story, is the day he comes home to find Cathy asleep, dead drunk, on their bed, while his daughter sits in another room in the beanbag, crying, with her lap full of a plate of baked beans. She tells him between sobs that she's been stuck in the beanbag for a long time, Daddy. Glenn rouses his wife and raises his voice, drowning out her slurred and cowed defence. Released by her father from the beanbag and now safely asleep in her bed, Cathy Jr. doesn't hear her father's words echoing, booming in the master bedroom. Narrative Destinations Fast forward some years. It's 1994, and we're back at the same broad, leafy street where Robin brought home the purple beanbag all those years ago. The share house has been demolished and replaced by a row of four neat, tree-shaded apartments. One of them belongs to Robin, now a social worker. Like the other dwellings, hers has polished floorboards, high ceilings and built-in bookshelves, in which there is no longer any room for the many books she has accumulated and read over the years. Her furniture is modest, eclectic, wicker and cane chairs, an old Jarrah dining table with a hand-embroidered tablecloth from Brazil, where she worked for three years, a purple cotton weave sofa with scatter cushions in various shades of blue. There's also a bean bag, the latest in a succession of them. Robin has retained an affection for these sacos, as they were originally called, beyond the vagaries of fads and fashions. They remind her of her relatively carefree uni days, with their attendant privileges and pleasures. She enjoys their accommodating hollows, the comfort of a place in which to sink down with a book immersed in silence and solitude. Not that Robin is lonely. While she's lived alone for many years and has never married, she has several cherished nephews and nieces and a number of precious friends, as well as a lover of some ten years whom she meets often for outings to concerts and films, for dinner and conversations. He's a professor of archaeology who lives a few streets away. When he visits Robin in her apartment or stays overnight, he knows her well enough to know that he mustn't sit in the beanbag, which is only big enough for one. This is the one object to which she lays claim, which she wants entirely to herself. This afternoon, Robin is sitting in her newest beanbag. It's a couple of years old, corduroyed, already wearing a little thin. She chose it for the nostalgia of psychedelic pink and because it clashes with the other colours in her living room. She's taken the day off work, a rare occurrence, because she's in need of a break. She's close to sleep, feeling drowsy after hours of slopping around in her dressing gown, eating when the mood takes her and reading trashy magazines. Not that she's a complainer or malingerer. Indeed, she remains buoyantly optimistic about people. Despite years of contact with what her concerned mother, at the beginning of her daughter's career, called the seedy side of life and the dregs of humanity. Certainly, Robin has seen much to give her cause for cynicism or despair. She once sang satirically to a friend, imitating Barbara Streisand in full voice, People who need social workers are the unluckiest people in the world. The poor, the embittered, the battered, the homeless, the sick, the deranged. But she also believes, from first-hand observation, from listening, that most suffering is the product of ignorance or thoughtlessness rather than deliberate cruelty. This belief is what's kept her going. As she drifts off into indulgent sleep, she hears singing from the apartment next door. This isn't unusual. 
Jodie is a music teacher who gives private lessons, mainly to high school students. Most afternoons between three and six, Robin can hear wafting through her walls various scales, tunes, songs from young hopefuls or those coerced by ambitious parents. She's seen one or two of the students leaving, carrying heavy school bags, young kids in uniform on their way home, no doubt, to more lessons, perhaps to more coercion. But this afternoon is different. The voice Robin hears is adult and arresting. She can't make out the lyrics, but the melody is sweetly melancholy, rather haunting. She finds herself fully awake, attentive, wanting to hear more. The singing lasts for the prescribed half an hour, and when it's over, Robin finds her curiosity piqued. She struggles out of her beanbag and moves to the window, parting the curtains, feeling like one of those gossiping biddies she sometimes encounters in her work and whom she secretly loathes. She sees a woman coming out of Jodie's door, a blonde, about forty years old, attractive, quite stunning, in fact. And then Robin recognises her. Cathy, country Cathy, who married that rugby player and who was such a happy young woman, a girl, really, way back when. She hasn't seen her since her wedding, how many years ago, but this is unmistakably Cathy. Her face, that most individualising of features, is the same, a peaches and cream complexion, those bedroom eyes, that air of rural innocence. She remembers, too, Cathy's voice and how she would only ever sing when the boys weren't home, and before she can stop herself, she goes outside and offers a greeting. Cathy, remember me? Robin. Robin from the share house in Forestdale, back in the 70s. You used to sing the blues, and you married Glenn. How are you? Cathy looks up, startled, and Robin can feel herself being sized up, as if the woman is unsure of her, suspicious. She's seen this look many times before, from the wary, the damaged, the vengeful, who think the social worker is just another person who will do them over, do them in. But then Cathy smiles shyly, with recognition. Robin! Why, of course, my goodness, that was a long time ago. When did we last meet? My wedding, I think it was. There's the predictable awkward silence in which smiles are momentarily forced as both women inwardly register the gap of twenty years. They know there could be so much to say, or nothing at all. Surprisingly, it's Cathy who speaks first. Ah, yes, my wedding. Glenn and I divorced a while back, seven years ago. We have a daughter, Cathy. She's eleven. She pauses, her face clouded. I wish she had her own name, but what can you do? She lives with her father, but I see her on weekends, and we get on. Well, really fine. Cathy looks at Robin's face and sees in it an invitation to disclosure. She sees not the practised expression of the experienced social worker, disinterested and calmly professional, but the eyes of someone who seems genuinely to want to know. It's hard, of course, but it was the right thing to do. I wasn't the best of mothers, you know. I wanted to be. I love my daughter. But somehow I became unhappy and I started drinking and not looking after her properly. She wonders how she might tell her story. But things are better now and Glenn's a good dad. He really is. And he's still, well, angry about many things. It's hard for some people to forgive. Her words seem suddenly weighted, but then her voice, her rather thin, unmelodious speaking voice, resumes... I don't drink any more and, well, I guess you heard me, I've started taking singing lessons again. I remember. Robin smiles brightly with reminiscence. You always liked to sing the blues. When we were alone in the house. 
Do you have any plans? A career in mind? Kathy screws up her face and then laughs. A career? Oh, no. No, nothing like that. I just love the music, I suppose. And because, well, I just want to get better, to be the best I can. Robin remembers why so long ago she'd liked Kathy, because she was unassuming and sincere. And then, because it seems entirely right, this looping back to a new beginning, she invites her in for a coffee, ushers her through the doorway and gestures around the room. Please, have a seat, Kathy, she says. Sit anywhere you like. 